This is the story of the one. As head of maintenance at a concert hall, he knows the show must always go on. That's why he works behind the scenes, ensuring every light is working, the HVAC is humming, and his facility shines. With Granger's supplies and solutions for every challenge he faces, plus 24-7 customer support, his venue never misses a beat. Call quickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger, for the ones who get it done. What's the easiest choice you can make? Window instead of middle seat? Picking a vendor who sends a great gift basket? Outsourcing business tasks you hate? What about selling with Shopify? Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage to the first real-life store stage, all the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage, Shopify is there to help you grow. Whether you're selling scented soap or offering outdoor outfits, Shopify helps you sell. Wherever and whatever you're selling, Shopify's got you covered. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash try. Go to shopify.com slash try now to grow your business, no matter what stage you're in. Shopify.com slash try. Let's go back in time to 1932 as Congress brings you historic footage of the legendary original Celtics with whom all great professional teams are compared. Hello and welcome to the Over and Back Classic NBA Podcast at HarvardProxism.com. I am Jason Mann, and with me as usual is Rich Kreich. Rich Kreich, we're back with you. Yes, we're going 90s. We are. In the I can't wait. Part, I can't wait. 90s week. Yes, the uh, the the fine decade of the uh, 1990s. We've uh, got a couple shows this week to uh, cover 90s week for Harvard Proxism, so we're excited about that. Um, and this is going to be a review of the 1995 season, which uh, definitely some exciting things uh, going on there. Uh, middle of the decade, so you kind of get some some of the trends from the early part matching the trends from the uh, latter part. And uh, uh, good one to tackle, I think. So, And we have a great guest to uh, tackle it with, a uh, student of uh, NBA history. He is the uh, NBA editor at uh, the Sporting News, uh, Adi Joseph. Adi, welcome to the program. Hey. Honored to be here. Uh, and 1995 is a good year, so it's a good one to talk about. Absolutely. And um, I, I think we'll kick it off with the discussion of the uh, 1994-95 Rockets. They are the lowest seed ever to win an NBA Finals as a sixth seed. They were the first to beat uh, four 50-plus uh, game winners um, during the uh, playoffs. The 2001 Lakers did it as well later on. Only 47-35. and 35, um, and uh, this was the uh, second championship for the team in as many years, but they were a significantly different team in the uh, second years, uh, highlighted by a uh, a big trade for uh, getting Clyde Drexler from the Portland Trailblazers for o- Otis Thorpe. Those were the major players in that trade and reuniting the five Slamma Jamma um, University of Houston, uh, Hakeem and Clyde together again. And um, even though it didn't go that great in the uh, regular season, it was um, 
outstanding in the postseason as the uh, the Clutch City Rockets managed to um, managed to basically uh, cast an upset in every round and uh, beat some really impressive teams. The especially the Western Conference was very deep that year and uh, managed to uh, to win a championship. Um, and even though people don't believe it, uh, Michael Jordan did actually play in the NBA uh, that season. So, um, so so people who say that that Michael Jordan wasn't there, not true. <laughs> he was there. I, I think we. If nothing else, if I want people to learn nothing else from this podcast, I just want people to learn that Michael Jordan did play in the 1995 season and he lost in the playoffs. So <laughs> the other the other podcast in the other years would just be, well, no one could beat Michael Jordan. <laughs> that was pretty much pretty yes. much the rest of the 90s were eh, Michael Jordan was really good at basketball. And, and this year was I mean, we needed to only let him play 17 regular season games, but Hey, someone beat Michael Jordan. It it counts. Uh, that's all I'm saying. It counts on the record. Let the record show. It's it, it's important. So, Rich, are you going to defend the Bulls' honor now, or do you want to? No, I don't do care. No, you know me. You know me. Okay. I, I like you know as I I love my Bulls or whatever. But yeah, I get a little annoyed by like the Jordan demi like the 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 godness of Jordan stuff. Where I, it's okay, you know. Some people won when he wasn't. Uh, whatever. Yeah, yeah. I don't. I don't care. They're fine. They had a. Had a good run. It was the year before that they had the really. I, I like that team a lot. Like that Bulls did the pre the first post Jordan team the year prior to this was awesome because it was just like how are they this good? Like they shouldn't be this good or whatever. And then this next year they came back and it was a little uneven or whatever. And of course Jordan comes back and and they kind of got on a nice little path at the end and and made a good little run. But yeah, I mean it was a team that needed some 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 differences too. It's 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 actually a very fitting team for what we're talking about because like you said, there's a lot of vestiges of like that prior Bulls team. And then what we knew is that there would be some little parts here and there of what that new Bulls team would become and then it, it, it sort of took this year to sort of for them to reinvent themselves so I think that next year was and then we saw you know of course the insane dominance of you know 72 wins and all that stuff but no I won't uh, I, yeah. I won't defend. a good, good a pat on the back there for you know good 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 try for uh, good old MJ this year you know didn't, didn't win but he got a good try pat on the back that's important so 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 Adi what uh, what stands out to you for this uh, this Rockets team well as I told you guys um Sam Cassell is my favorite basketball player of all time. And this was kind of the year for for Sam to really make his – I mean, he obviously he was on the previous year's team, but this year was a big stepping stone for him where he became – even though, you know, Kenny Smith was still a, a, a fine starter, Sam Cassell became clearly their best point guard. And um, that's that's definitely uh, stands out in my mind as an important thing, but – the other one is honestly that Magic team was just so much fun, and I think you know, for a lot of people around my age, uh, maybe a little bit younger, maybe a little older, that that Shaq and Penny combination is is a defining moment in NBA history. Yeah, I mean that was a really um, you know, they both came into the league around the same time. We're about the same age, um, you know. Um, Shaq fit all of the great, you know, big man tropes and um, and Penny, you know, looked if you squinted, you kind of saw a another another magic in there, at least in terms of, you know, being a a, a great point guard at a similar size, having some of the same um, s- skill set. So, um, you know, you, you definitely, you know, there were there was the foundations of that as well. They also had, you know, some other pretty good um 
Uh, they they got Horace Grant from the um, from the Bulls. Um, they also had Dennis Scott, not, who is a knockdown shooter and one of the better three point shooters in the league uh, during that time. You know, they 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 had you know kind of a nice mix of you know, you know and, and and a foundation of really young guys, kind of like you know Oklahoma City in the uh, in recent years with um, Durant and Westbrook. It's obviously you know a, a, a parallel that's going on, or even with um, with uh, the um, the Warriors now. I mean, just having a you know a group of guys, you know, two core pieces who at, at the time of these finals were twenty two and twenty three. That's a uh, that, that's a, that's a pretty magical thing. <laughs> yeah, that's. I think that's the most significant thing that I I take away from from this Rocket season in, in general is that they you know they get to the finals and they sweep this Magic team and it was like you know going back and watching I was watching some videos and documentaries and, and stuff about the Rockets team and and the build up to the the Magic that year was like oh my this team is already so good and that guy's twenty two and he's dominating the league and leading the league in scoring and he's a rebounding machine he's breaking backboards or whatever and then this guy's twenty three and he looks like Magic Johnson and he plays like magic it's just like man like you 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 have to think like there's no way this team loses there's no way this team doesn't at least maybe push it to seven games and lose in a heart but they they get swept by this Rockets team and this Rockets team had trouble all it was like they just never it it wasn't until this last little rally that it seemed like everything kind of got together for the Rockets because I mean we'll, we'll talk about it here in a little bit but it was pretty uneven the whole year. And then even when you get Drexler, there's still some kind of stuff going. And then it's just like, for whatever reason, the, the playoffs came and then like they blow, you know, you know, they beat the jazz who are, who are great. They beat the, um, the Spurs who are great. Or they beat the, um, who am I blanking in between there? Are oh, the Suns? Yeah. Right, right. The Suns in between, and then you get to the Spurs or whatever, and then it's like, geez, they've gone through all this, and now you have to face the 22 and 23 year olds, and you guys are a bunch of old, you know. And that's the thing too is like, it's kind of an older team, the Rockets at that point, where you're coming up against this buzzsaw of like all these young dudes that it's like, oh my god, these guys are gonna just dominate the league for the next decade or whatever, and then they just sweep them, and it's just like, oh, okay, like, huh? It's just it's unique. It's just so weird that like it, it, you just it, it's it almost seems impossible that they were able to do that. Yeah, I think, you know, I mean, we don't, we shouldn't, we shouldn't devalue the Rockets that much because oh, no, they're defending champions. And they, they did have Hakeem, uh, but they had stumbled so much. And the, the, the Drexler trade, which I think we'll talk about a little more in, in more detail soon, it was a big thing. One of the really interesting things about the Rockets team was that they, the, the NBA had shorter three point lines in the mid 90s for three seasons. And the Rockets were the team that took advantage. Rudy T, Rudy Tomjanovich was, uh, he was the one who really, the coach who really most clearly realized if they're going to move the line in a little bit, I'm going to have my guys, and I believe it was 22 feet all the way around instead of having a wider wider arc. It basically, he was the guy who said, all right, let's just have – Vernon Maxwell and Robert Ory and Kenny Smith and Mario Ellie and all those guys, all the guys on the team basically, except for Hakeem, were taking three-pointers. And that that was a, a big part of their genius the previous season. And some people, I think, kind of thought they might have taken it too far in 95 because they jacked their three-point rate up even higher. Yeah. Um, remember, this is an era when taking too many threes was a thing. Sure, <laughs> absolutely. I mean, even this era, it, it's, it's still people get bothered by it, even though you know it's been pretty <laughs> proven effective at this point. But um, but there is the worry just of like uh, of that balance being you know off in in an aesthetic way and in somewhat of you know teams that aren't the Warriors' way. Um, yeah, but, but you know, as you mentioned, um, you know, there was a lot of turmoil. Um, 
during the year. I mean, right before the uh, the, the Drexler trade, actually eight days before, uh, Vernon Maxwell attacked a fan in Portland, was suspended for 10 games. Then the the trade is made. Um, so Thorpe leaves the team. He was the number two minutes leader for the 94 Rockets and also you know very much a fan favorite, a glue guy for the team. Um, then Vernon Maxwell failed to show for practice after the trade, um, and he was the number three minutes leader on the team. He did play down the stretch of the season, but but um, later on uh, he suspended or was suspended slash left the team, depending on who you talk to. After one game in the playoffs, didn't didn't play um, after that, so he was gone after that. So so they managed to you know put together this um, you know this this run through the playoffs. Um, without you know two of their really key players, of course they add Drexler, who gets when he's traded, um, gets a you know conquering hometown hero. Um, uh, around halftime, shortly after halftime, you know he uh, he they he and um, Tracy Murray fly their other another guy who's part of the trade, and just you know arrives this big standing ovation, and there's just so much excitement for it. But you know, the weird thing is that they played actually quite a bit better before the trade than they did after the trade. Before the trade, they were 30 and 17, they had a 3.2 net rating, and then after the trade, it was 17 and 18 record with a a 0.9 net rating. And you know Hakeem missed a couple weeks there. Ori missed a, about a month there, so there's certainly that, and just you know the some of the chemistry things they have to work out when you you know add a piece like Drexler. And Drexler did, you know, um, he was able to kind of carry a lot of the scoring load while um, Hakeem was gone. They managed to be thir- three and five during that stretch that he was gone, so you know he kind of held it together. But it, it's you would not. You know, looking at how they played after the trade, there's there was really nothing in there um, that would make you think, oh yeah, they can win the championship at this point. I mean, they were. It seemed like at least at that point they were pretty much just hanging on. Yeah, I think you know, Clyde kind of gets underrated a little bit historically because people remember him so. Like people, uh, I think in a lot of people's minds, he played a lot longer in Houston than he did, and. Uh, the truth is, he he was. Now, I don't want to say washed up because he was still a very good player for his last three and a half seasons, but he was nowhere near as efficient and as dominant as he was in Portland when he when he got to the uh, Rockets. And and that that three point um, change really didn't suit his game. That was not who Clyde Drexler uh, kind of wanted to be. I don't think. And because um, you know he he was more of a, a slasher. The, the shorter three-point range really helped the guys who were good at long twos. And um, Clyde, Clyde did a lot to improve himself for the next season. And, and the Rockets were, you know, a lot better in a lot of ways with the, the, the following season than they were in the half season that they played with Clyde in 94-95. But that was not... That was not the best point. That was not the best version of Clyde Drexler. And if you had combined him and Hakeem in '92, someone might have beaten Jordan. You know, <laughs> yeah. Uh, and, and that would have been. I mean, um, Drexler absolutely at his peak, and then um, you know Hakeem. He would have because he's like 32, 33 at this point too. I mean, he's getting older. He's still. I mean, he's obviously playing at an at an immaculate level. Um, but yeah, both those guys at age twenty eight together. That would be. Um, that would have obviously been um uh an incredible thing um so their playoff run uh to repeat as champions uh they were down in both the first two rounds they were down two two to one um against the jazz it was a back when it was a five game series the the rockets managed to rally um 
Drexler helped lead a Game 5 win in uh, Salt Lake City after the Rockets were down 7 late in the game. Um, there's a great uh, Houston Press oral history of uh, this team. Um, and in one, there's um, a, a quote from Rudy T who said, says, you know, there's there are so many situations when I go back through that title run where I say, how in the hell did we do that? And Game 5 in Houston <laughs> was the... Uh, the first moment there um, in the second round, uh, they're down to the Suns three to one. And this is the um, you, you know, the Jazz are the Stockton Malone, you know, really, you know, I think that might have they've actually been their best regular season. And then, um, you know, they're, they're down to Charles Barkley's Suns, you know, who had been there a couple years, been to the finals a couple years ago, still really good. Um, and they were down three one, but they managed to win in seven. And before game seven, Drexler was in bed all day with a hundred and 102 degree fever and hooked up to an IV and basically didn't really know what he where he was and what he was doing during the game. Didn't score, but managed to get um, contributions from Mario Ellie and uh, Chucky Brown, who uh, Chucky Brown had um, two interesting things about him. He had joined the team initially on a 10 day contract and then had another one then was uh, there for the rest of the season and had a guaranteed contract the next season. That was a big uh, plus for him after the uh, finals happened. They basically said, we'll take care of you. And he is tied for the record with most teams played in uh, NBA history with 12. So uh, good old <laughs> Chucky Brown. Um, and uh, this is the, the, the big uh, thing, big moment I think is best remembered in this series is the Mario Ellie uh, game winner uh, and the followed with by the kiss of death um, afterwards, sort of the his famous signature. I think that was game six of the uh, uh, of the series. I don't remember off the top of my head, but that was uh, you know one of the key moments that led to the um the Rockets uh, winning the series. A- any memories, um, Adi, from these uh, first two series that stand out? You know, you brought up Chucky Brown, and um, I actually was sitting next to him uh, at a Hornets game pretty recently, and I was talking to him about this team, and what he said was his number one thing with this team was it was the most businesslike, without a question, team that he had ever played for, especially with, with Clyde. And, um, you know, it was it was a situation where Rudy T and Hakeem had built that ser- that level of trust so that a guy like Ellie could take that key shot, and it was and a guy like Sam Cassell had big moments and Robert Ory and all of those players probably more than most other teams in NBA even championship teams in NBA history. This team had just a diverse set of guys who played big roles, and Chucky Brown was. Certainly one of those guys, he he started a lot of games and um, 14 games, it looks like. And, you know, that that I think was a core factor in what made this team special was they really believed in everyone on the court. And it it showed in that run because, like you said, they were they were facing some in those first two rounds. They're facing, you know, at least what, four, four Hall of Famers, two on each team, if there weren't even more on on the Suns at that point. And. A uh, couple great coaches and Jerry Sloan and Paul Westfall, and they were, uh, in all honesty, and on paper, I, I'm I'm sure looking back, it's it might seem crazy to say this about the defending champions, but they were underdogs. Absolutely, and I think one of the you kind of stole my point that I was going to say about this, especially these two rounds, is it's so vivid when you when you watch you know videos back and and watch you know documentaries or whatever when they're talking about this team. In those two games, the the big highlights they show, 
there's not much Hakeem in there. We'll talk about the next series where Hakeem really does, you know, the heavy lifting. But it's really cool how you see guys, like you said, Amaro Ellie is hitting a bunch of big shots. Robert Ori is hitting a bunch of big shots. Sam Cassell is hitting a bunch of big shots. Chucky Brown's hitting a bunch. It's like these other guys that you talk about and you look at. And it's like, yeah, there's a certain level of every champion needs like that one random, you know, a random guy here and there to hit a big shot. You know, your John Paxson's of the world to, to hit these big shots. But you watch these series, you watch these highlights and you go, man, like these these guys each and every time when it was like they needed a big shot, a big run, something like that, it was one of these guys that you've been like are just sort of like well like we know Ori now and we know Cassell now but these are babies at this time and like and they were you know relied upon and trusted to to make these big shots to be in these big positions to be in the game at this time and I think that's that's a testament to Hakeem as you said sort of building that that foundation and also Rudy T doing that as well of building that sort of foundation of a team where yeah a Chucky Brown can come from a 10-day contract and play big minutes and start for a team that's about to you know embark on a championship run which is crazy to think about but it, it it's it's really vivid and I think these two rounds and then we see that next round where it Hakeem kind of says, okay, well, now I'm going <laughs> to do some work here uh, against the Spurs. But that's that's a, a discussion that has been had by many, many people. Yeah, yeah so. I think there is one thing. Like, Hakeem was averaging 30-plus points a game in these series. He averaged 30 Oh, no, he was great. Yeah. The, it's, what it is is I think that this is part of what building around a center is. You, you know that a center needs to be able to draw the double team and – very few centers are going to against really good double teams, double teams that where Carl Malone is the number two guy on the double team. Most centers are not going to want want to or be good at scoring against that. So what Hakeem did in those two series was dominated early, forced consistent double teams, and then hit those guys who were taking advantage yeah, right. of that that shorter three point line. Yeah, and. Um... In the um, I, I I looked it up because I I, for, I forgot to look up the specifics, but the uh, the Jazz had sixty wins, the uh, Suns had fifty nine wins, and then the uh, the Spurs had sixty two wins. So um, the, the Magic had fifty seven. So I, I sort of undersold it when I said they beat four fifty plus game winners. I mean they really beat four fifty seven plus game winners. So um, that's obviously quite remarkable. Um, yeah, <laughs> specifically the, uh, the the Spurs series. Um, Hakeem averaged uh, 35 points, 12.5 rebounds, 5 assists, 1.3 steals, and 4.2 blocks per game um, on 56% uh, shooting. Uh, Robinson, in, in most series, has to be pretty good. 23.8 points, 11.3 re- rebounds, 2.7 assists, 1.5 steals, and 2.2 uh, blocks on 45% shooting. So, um, you know, Robinson didn't exactly do terribly, but uh, Hakeem obviously, you know, uh, a dominant series. And uh, that that was inspired by the MVP present, MVP trophy presentation <laughs> to David Robinson uh, before game two. And then Drexel talks about like how everyone was kind of like riling Hakeem up and saying, you know, and he said the nerve of them giving him your trophy right before this game. And he, he said, I stomped away like I was disappointed and dream grabbing by the arm before I, I could walk away. And he said, do not worry. We will get the big trophy. I felt really good at that point. So I guarantee that's an exact quote. Like that, I could I could see Hakeem saying that exact word. Like yes. when you said that, I, I read it in his voice yes. too. Of like the, that's the, exactly the Houston that. Press uh, oral history had that as well. So that, that yeah. yeah. Um, and there I haven't seen all of it, but there's also a great um, NBA TV documentary um, on this that came out I think in the last year or so, um, fairly recently. Um, uh, talking about it as well. Have either of you guys seen or? 
I think I have. Yeah, I don't recall right off the top of my head, but I, I'm almost positive I have seen that because I think that's what I was. Um, yeah. Yeah, I, I don't know 100%, but I'm sure. almost positive. But uh, like you were saying, no, David Robinson had, you know, what you would say is good games, but it was more like the optics and the narrative of him just getting like yeah. pulverized. You know, you know what I mean? Like I mean, clearly he did. Get, I mean, he got out yeah, and exactly. played. I mean, right. But it's sort of like, yeah, you it, sometimes you wouldn't be like, ah, 20, you know, that's not bad numbers, but like it was the optics that Hakeem just went and, and just shoved and, it down his and, throat. And we've, like, we've yeah. talked about before how Robinson's career really, I think, is stained by his performance there. And it's a little sure. bit unfair, but at the same time, Hakeem did really, you know, wreck him pretty well <laughs> in the down series. His throat, yeah. So, yeah. Yeah. I think, you know, one of the differences is what I was saying, you know, when, when you have Joe Klein as your starting center, you double Hakeem. Yeah, And you think when you have David Robinson as your starting center that you don't need to double Hakeem and you always need to double Hakeem. And maybe that maybe that played a little bit into the Spurs. Uh, you know, we, we see all those highlights of Hakeem just just using all of his unbelievable uh, creativity in the post and his footwork and just basically spinning around and doing what he wanted, even against a great, great all time great player in David Robinson. And you wonder, maybe they should have been double teaming because that <laughs> that sure uh, that sure didn't work to let him guard him one on one. Even though you had you know the MVP, a guy who actually deserved that MVP, I might add. Sure, absolutely, yeah. Um, and a guy regarded as a great player, but probably not um, you, you know as much as he should be. But. Um, so going to the uh, finals themselves, uh, again, it was a sweep. Uh, I believe only yeah, the sixth final sweep in NBA history. Uh, Rockets were actually down by 20 in the uh, the first game, um, which I actually remember watching. Uh, I remember well watching this game. Um, and um, the Rockets made uh, a big rally. Um, the uh, the Magic had a chance to win, but then Nick Anderson uh, famously missed a four three free throws in a row. And then Kenny Smith, after that, hit a three-pointer to uh, tie, and then the Rockets won in overtime on uh, Hakeem uh, Tippin at the at the buzzer. And um, it, it was that you know, there were some close games in the series. It wasn't like they necessarily just you know walked all over them um, in the finals. But uh, obviously, you know, at, at that point, it's um, you know when you, when you get swept, you you can only be in it for so much. So um, you know, definitely an impressive um, win. And as we mentioned before, the um, Rockets are um, playing against this really promising um, uh, Magic team in the uh, finals. Hakeem is uh, 32.8, 11.5, 5.5 assists, uh, two steals and two blocks. Uh, Shaq with uh, 28 points, 12.5 rebounds, uh, 6.3 assists, um, and 2.5 blocks. Um, so statistically, uh, they, they matched up a little bit uh, a little bit better and... Um, uh, but you know, as I said, the 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 well-rounded, more veteran uh, team uh, seemed to uh, seemed to pull it out. And um, you know, other than uh, Game Three being pr- pretty close, the other games were not necessarily all that close. So, uh, anything else? Uh, obviously, the Nick Anderson uh, free throws, which we had to mention, even though I know there were some people who were begging us not to mention them. Um, <laughs> you, can, you have to. <laughs> a- anything else uh, stand out for you guys as far as these uh, these finals go? I think we were robbed a little bit because, you know, as as we said, the the previous year's Rockets teams were team was better, and the Knicks got dragged out, dragged that that team out to seven games, and I I mean the that was the year that Reggie Miller uh, did his whole thing against the Knicks in the playoffs, and um, 
that eliminated the Knicks in the second round of the Eastern Conference playoffs and, and led to the Magic beating the Pacers in the, in the Eastern Conference Finals, it, it's, it's almost a little bit of a shame that we didn't get to see another, a second Ewing, Ewing uh, Olajuwon matchup there because it probably would not have been a sweep at the very least. Yeah, even though you know the, the matchup of Akeem and, and Shaq is a you know a, that has that magical quality and and, and it was certainly competitive during the series, but really, right the uh, it was not obviously we only got four games, so it was it, it couldn't have been that magical. It was almost but, a, almost like a scarring moment. It was like an unnecessary scar on Shaq's career. Like, oh, you think you're good? You think you're really good? Yeah, Hakeem just owned you. And that was that was a defining moment that I think kind of maybe helped drive him a little bit toward bettering himself, which we we know Shaq was not always the best at finding that motivation. But that that kind of drove him into what became his best seasons, which were 99, 2000 and 2000, 2001. Um, with without that memory of Hakeem just owning him, maybe he doesn't work as hard to get better. Sure. And, and you wonder if that, you know, if. If you know the Rockets win this series four two, if that changes the calculus on anyone, you know, as far as as, as Shaq goes, as far as having confidence in the Magic or, um, you know, changing him leaving for LA. I mean, that's impossible to know. Maybe that doesn't make that much of a difference. But, um, but you have to. You, it, I think it it does pay to wonder. I, obviously, getting um smashed by the Bulls in ninety six, it was a a big one as well. But I, I, having two of those uh, strong, you know. Being swept in uh, in playoff series to clearly superior teams, uh, you know, ha- had to have um, something, and this is obviously the first one. All right, anything else about the uh, Rockets before we move on to other topics? No, I think I'm good. Yeah, I, I mean, I just it, that that two year run was special. It's it, it is all. It's also a shame on top of the the of uh, the Knicks that they didn't get to play the Bulls because. If they had, I mean, the Bulls didn't have Rodman yet, and they didn't have Grant anymore, and the Rockets probably could have beaten the Bulls, but it's it's a shame that we didn't get to see MJ potentially lose. See what see what MJ does when he has even less help in a finals. That would have been a, a, an awesome experience. Yeah, the um, the, the Rockets uh, basically had, had another couple of years of you know uh, of playoff contention. They lost in the Western Conference semis the uh, next year in '97. They got Barkley and they made it all the way to the. Um, the Western Conference Finals um, and uh, lost in six to uh, the Jazz, beat, beat the Sonics in a pre-classic uh, seven-game series in, in the semifinals. So that was kind of the that, that was kind of the rest of the run for those teams. After that, they you know they started aging and um, they tr- tried Pippen, um, Pippen, Olajuwon, and Barkley, and that uh, fizzled. And then they moved on to the next era of the team and, and got some bad jerseys in the uh, in the meantime. I, I, I'm glad that they did not make a finals with those um, jerseys because that would have been an abomination. <laughs> it's always the worst part about the Jazz is that they made their big run with those yeah, jerseys. And yeah. I, it's like I get so irrationally angry about right. that. Like I was watching videos of this and I was like, oh, those Jazz uniforms were so good. And then they ah, they got so much success with those crappy, crappy uniforms. Yeah, the, the Sonics too. The Sonics had the bad ones in '96. Oh yeah. yeah. Oh. yeah. You 
have uh, some interesting uh, 1995 stats to, uh, yes. to throw at us. Yeah, so let's uh, we'll look at a few things here. Um, real quick, uh, MVP David Robinson. Uh, he was third in points per game, seventh in rebounds per game, fourth in blocks per game, tenth in steals, first in free throws, first in win shares, first in win shares per 48, first in box score plus minus, first in value of a replacement player, first in PR, and first in HBOX, which is the new uh, Nylon Calculus stat. So uh, as Adi said, yeah, he is a very, very deserving <laughs> MVP candidate that year. Uh, some other notables, uh, points per game, Shaq uh, led the league at 29.3. Uh, rebounds per game, Rodman at 16.8. Uh, assists per game, Stockton, uh, John Stockton at 12.3. Steals per game, Scottie Pippen, 2.9. And then blocks per game, of course, Dikembe Mutombo at 3.9. Uh, some other notables, uh, Seattle Supersonics, their uh, SRS was 7.91, which is actually the 23rd best in the three-point era. So it was a really, really good team uh, that year as well. We haven't really mentioned much of them. Uh, the Shaq, uh, he led the league in two-pointers by 111 over Carl Malone. So he had plenty uh, of uh, points for himself. Uh, this is an interesting one to Kevin Matumbo. Uh, he didn't lead the league in offensive rebounds or defensive rebounds, but he had an overall lead in total rebounds by 128 this year as well, which is nice and fun. Uh, John Stockton, he led the league in assists by a mere 331. Uh, Kenny Anderson was second, so nice job, Kenny, but sorry. Um, and then as far as like changes, of course, we talk about this year, and we'll talk a little bit about this uh, in a little bit, but in terms of changes in pace and style, of course, the the three-point line getting shortened for um, the with the goal of increasing scoring uh, didn't really work all that well. It uh, didn't increase overall scoring all that much. Uh, points per game actually continued the drop. Uh, they went to 100, uh, 101.4 this year. Uh, and that was after being as high as a, a 107 in the 19, uh, 1990, actually. So, yeah, points per game were continuing sort of to plummet. Uh, pace uh, fell as well. It went down to uh, it, down from 2.2 uh, from 1994 and down 5.4 from 1990. So we saw as the decade was sort of getting older, pace was falling, points per game were falling. Uh, and the good news, though, attendance rose by over 20,000 league-wide uh, per team. So, you know, that's up a, a tremendous mark, even from 1990. It's up 47,000. Uh, from 1990, so the NBA was just getting yeah. just in, ungodly popular at this point, and, and we all know that. We and it's just incredible and, to and see in, how big it was. And that's interesting because, of course, most of the season was without Jordan, you know, and, and that was right. always yeah, like and a worry. That, <laughs> yeah, right. I mean, that was always a worry that you know, with Jordan being gone, and of course, you know, Burden and Magic had retired, you know, a couple years before, before that for each. So um, the fact that the attendance was up during that time I, yeah. is is interesting. It is, yeah, and it's the first year without, you know, like like you said, it's that first year or the first another big year without all those guys. Like you're talking about, like a bird, a magic, or whatever. And there was a there was a little bit of a fall the year prior, but this year then it increased uh, over that, and like I said, up forty seven thousand over nineteen ninety. So sure. just yeah, it, it was obviously the NBA was just blowing up in popularity with or without Jordan, and would only get even more uh, when Jordan did come back. So yeah, cool to know. I think one thing that stands out to me there is that Sonics number. Um, and you just think like if Jordan doesn't come back and we don't get the greatest team ever, um, that next year we could have seen the Sonics and the magic play in the finals. And that would have been not only a really cool matchup between two up and coming teams, but it also would have been like the most nineties ma- moment in the history. Of- oh, yeah. Sean Kemp, <laughs> Hardaway. Like, yeah, come on. Dunk out yeah. Another, and like, you're like, oh man, these guys are going to rule the NBA for the next decade. Magic and Sonics. <laughs> like, <laughs> Who could stop these guys? You could not get any more 90s than a so- 1996 Sonics Magic Final. Especially those hideous fucking uniforms. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Uh, yes. and, uh, God, so mad about At them. least the Magic would have looked good, you know. Yes, I, I've always enjoyed those. Um, I, I know you're not a big big fan of the pinstripes, uh, Rich, but, you know, I, I... 
Yeah, Richard's anti-pinstripes in in all forms, even <laughs> um, even for the the magic. It's you know we we, we love Rich despite this despite this. I, I'm a Yankees so. fan, so I have some strong disagreements there. But well, that's fair. Yeah, I, I get that. <laughs> that's fair. But yeah, we had a yeah we had a whole uh, podcast about pretty much like ninety percent of the podcast we talked about jerseys was me getting or Jason getting mad at me for not liking pitch. I don't know so. if I, it goes so far to say I was mad at you. I was just oh I think you were maybe, actually mad. maybe be you were actually or be yeah, fuddled. No, you were Perhaps, but you were pissed. <laughs> you know, one thing that I, the, the fact that that pace dropped so much in the 90s, and, and I mean, I know part of it is the just sort of the the changes in defensive style with the the Pistons and later the uh, the Knicks, um, you know, sort of enabling, you know, kind of a grinded out slower league. And I guess the other thing is that you, you pretty much most of the successful teams by the mid 90s are all, you know, older teams like the, you know, the Magic obviously being a, a notable exception, but, you know, the Rockets are pretty old, the Jazz are pretty old, the Bulls are pretty old, the Knicks are, you know, are aging. I mean, all these teams are in their, you know, their, their main players are in their mid, uh, early 30s. Um, and I wonder if just, yeah, I think most players, it's true as they get older, they they tend to play slower. And I wonder how much that, had to do with it as well, especially with you know, kind of the 89 through 91, 92 drafts. So some of those years, not the, the restocking of talent kind of took a while. There were, were exceptions, obviously, Shaq, for instance, but uh, you know, the, those drafts were kind of weak. The superstars, you know, the uh, you know, Jordan and those guys were kind of enabled to hold on a little bit because of the you know, the there wasn't quite as much talent in you know, the in like a four year period kind of coming into the league. I don't know if you guys have any thoughts on that, but that just occurred to me yeah, as that, we are I mean, discussing you're right, this. You're right that the certainly between after 1985, between 1985 and 1992, the draft caliber was weak. I mean, we barely even think of Larry Johnson as a bust, and the guy was not all that good for a number one pick. You know, uh, David Robinson took forever to get to the NBA, and. Um, you know, four years in college, two years in the Navy, and um, it was it was a bizarre time for the NBA draft, and and you had guys like, you know, Purvis Ellison, who was a hot shot as a freshman at Louisville, would in today's era would have declared no brainer after the uh, after winning the championship as a freshman. He comes out after his senior year, and he is a pretty low key, you know, number one pick. Derek. Derek Coleman and Danny Manning certainly had talent, but had their problems that didn't lead them to maximize it. So we had what we had in 94-95 was a a group of guys who we didn't quite get. They weren't quite ready, like Chris Webber and um, uh, Jason Kidd and, and Grant Hill. They were in the league. They just weren't quite ready to maximize it. And then what we saw in... The 95, 96, 97, 98 drafts was just an overload of talent that kind of carried us into the 2000s. Yeah, absolutely. And a number of those guys, of course, were, um, you know, pretty young or high school. That that 95, according to Garnett, is is when high school. So it did take a little bit for some of that talent. That was a younger crop in general and maybe took a couple of those guys a little bit of time to mature as well, Um, you know, longer than you would have expected in, you know, the previous five to ten years. So it's an interesting mix of how that all kind of worked out. 
Yeah, actually, this would be a good time to talk about the Rookie of the Year race, which is one of my favorites, uh, the 94-95 Jason Kidd and Grant Hill. I mean, Jason Kidd came out after his sophomore year, and you kind of saw, man, this guy's super talented, but he's still got some things to work out. Grant Hill, on the other hand, have we ever seen a player, um, a wing player like that, just come in and be so polished? I mean, even Magic Johnson, who was better, still had a long way to go. Grant comes in, and he just looks like he's ready to play as an NBA player on day one. Yeah, and he was such a smooth player, too. And yeah. and, and really, um, looking back at some of the video, I mean, even like more like athletic and fierce than I I, I remember. I mean, oh, yeah. he was just a, such a great dunker and um, and just such a, you know, kind of kind of always made the right play, but was flashier than, um, you know, that I think people remember, obviously, you know, the the, the post injury Grant Hill, you know, uh, being the more recent Grant Hill that, that people probably um, remember a little bit more. Um, but, yeah, I mean, he was absolutely, um, you know, really well and fully formed and just a, a, a really a crisp player. And, and Kid was, um, you know, really just kind of the engine than that that those maps needed. Um, I mean, uh, he uh, they improved from 13 to 36 wins that year and looked like they were going to be uh, a team on the rise with uh, with Kid and Jamal Mashburn and Jim Jackson all together, that 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 core being together. And, and those guys seemed like they would play pretty well together, but that did not uh I did not work out. Those guys were all pretty much gone in the uh, next uh, n- next couple of years, next two years. And um, uh, but yeah, I mean, Grant by point one percent, point one points per game, he um, missed out on a twenty five five uh, rookie season, which I think like Oscar Robertson um, and a couple other guys, Jordan, and I think one other guy uh, managed to accomplish in, in his career. Um, but yeah, what was really uh, stout, and um, it's funny because they um, apparently Dan Patrick switched his vote from Kid to Grant Hill at the last minute, leading to a tie. Other uh, otherwise, um, Kid would have won the uh, the Rookie of the Year award. But that's um, uh, there have actually been more a, a decent number of co um, award winners. Um, there was both in the NBA and the ABA in 1971. There were co-rookies of the year: Jeff Petrie and Dave Cowens in the NBA, and Charlie Scott and Dan Issel in the ABA in 1975. There were co-ABA MVPs: um, George McGinnis, uh, Julius Irving, and uh, in 2000 there were co-rookies of the year: Elton Brand and Steve Francis. So it's happened the most with the uh, Rookie of the Year. Actually, I guess it happened the most with the uh, All-Star MVP. There were four. Um, uh, times it's happened, most recently by Shaq and Kobe in 2009. And the funny thing about um, Hill and Grant is that they not only started at the same time, but they ended up retiring two days apart as well. So I thought that was always a uh, a nice uh, bit of a uh, juxtaposition there. Yeah, you know, I have a funny little uh, Grant Hill thing, which is anytime I cover an NBA game and I'm eating the meal, uh, I pretty much always drink Sprite. Because I just associate it with the NBA, and I don't ever drink Sprite otherwise. <laughs> so the one time it's like I associate Sprite in the NBA thanks to Grant Hill and his yeah. laws. <laughs> when you're when you're all sweaty, there's nothing like cracking open a uh, uh, when you're sweaty after playing basketball. Nothing like cracking open a Sprite yeah. to, to really quench the thirst. There, I don't. Grant Hill drinks. I remember Sprite trying that, and, and it was like not Sprite. good. Like yeah, that's the worst. Like I would play basketball and like because like you had to because Grant Hill drank Sprite after he played games, so why couldn't it? And, like, it was always terrible. Like, I burped a lot, and I was like, this is not good. No, like, why don't I go do to this? this? This is not, yeah. not a good idea. Why would Grant Hill lie to me? He's such a nice guy. I know. 
Yeah. Uh, another important Grant Hill also accomplished another uh, important uh, feat in um, in 1995. Yeah, he uh, he was the first rookie in pro sports to lead fan balloting for the All Star Game, which is uh, very interesting. He beat Shaq. Uh, by about 26,000 votes. So not, you know, slim, but not insanely slim. But yeah, it's pretty crazy that, that, that he was able to do that. Grant Hill, I'm of course came in the league with a lot of the hype from Duke. I know he, um, he mentioned that as well in some quotes. He thought, you know, it's probably a lot. The fact that I was, you know, a big star in college and a Duke player, but, but still to beat Shaq, you know, that prime Shaq at that point is pretty interesting as well. Um, and that, that all-star game in general, we'll talk a little bit about that all-star game here in a sec, but, uh, uh, he's one of five players, uh, all from the Eastern conference that were making their all-star debuts. Uh, there was Anthony Hardaway. Of course, Penny was making his first, uh, he was the top vote getter amongst guards and he joined, uh, Grant Hill in the starting lineup. Uh, you also had Vin Baker, of the Milwaukee Bucks, Dana Barros of the 76ers. And of course, who can forget Tyrone Hill of the Cleveland Cavaliers made his uh, all-star game uh, debut here. And what was interesting is the last two names didn't even appear on the all-star ballot. So I don't know what was going on that year. People were loving the rookies that year. I don't know, but it's it's a very interesting uh, for Grant Hill to do that for that all-star game. And uh, he remains one of the four rookies to make the all-star team um, in the last 20 years. And that's Tim Duncan, Yao Ming and Blake Griffin. So it's not something that happens often, but Hill not only made it in his first year, but also uh, led the fan balloting. So that's a really awesome thing uh, for for Grant Hill. And a lot of that, you know, of course, will come, like I said, from his Duke years. But he was well-deserving as well. Like Adi mentioned, he was so, like, unlike any other player I think I, I can remember. Even even LeBron James, we remember, like, there was a weirdness, you know, where he's still kind of trying to figure himself out. Grant Hill, like, walked into the league and was just like, yeah, I'll score 20 and get, you know, seven rebounds. And it was like, all right, cool, thanks. Like, you know, there was nothing. You didn't have to do anything with the guy. He was just ready to go. And it's just, it's so unique. Yeah, I think what made Grant special was four years under Coach K with a lot of talented players around him, he just knew how to be an NBA player. Yeah. Yeah, and um, he was able to sort of also be the you know the transition for the Pistons from the Bad Boys days. Um, you know, Joe Dumars was sort of the only guy um, left from there. There's actually a pretty good... Um, SI article from uh, Phil Taylor from um, later on in the rookie season about sort of their, um, you know, mentor, mentor, menteeship um, relationship, even though Dumars is basically like, yeah, you know, he doesn't need, you know, he's a guy who doesn't really need, you know, mentor and, um, it was, it had some interesting things about sort of the generation gap and about how, um, Dumars didn't really feel like he, connected with the um some of the younger players and it felt like some of the attitudes with um you know um more money and um just of sort of the the image that you know was something he didn't really understand but grant was sort of a guy that he did understand and then grants were talking about where he was a little bit uncomfortable with that image of being the you know the good guy he says he doesn't have he he um it isn't something he created. It's not something I feel like I have to live up to. I know that, but sometimes I need to be reminded of it. So that was a good, you know, um, relationship to the, uh, um, between them. Yeah. All right. Now. Oh, sorry. Go ahead. Go ahead. I actually had a, uh, interview with Grant, um, last year and it was, it was for a story I did on Kobe and the concept of the next Michael Jordan. And, when I was talking to Grant, I could almost hear in his voice he hated being portrayed as that and being a new age, being portrayed as a new age player and being portrayed as a clean cut image. He he very much wanted to be his own player, but when you spend four years at Duke and you've got this clean cut um, image and you're the son of an NFL player and you're, you know, 
you have a very unique style of play that we hadn't really seen much of. I think he got thrusted into being sort of like the good guy version of the next Michael Jordan, and I'm not sure he ever wanted that. But it was uh, it was a time when, I mean, even in that era and when he came into the league, remember, Michael Jordan wasn't around. So even though he ended up playing five, five and a half se- seasons with Michael Jordan in the league at the time, for when Grant Hill walked into the league, we were looking for the next Michael Jordan because we right. didn't know he'd come back. So, you know, it, it's, it was a, a burden he kind of had to carry was he was kind of the easiest fit for that role. All right, so I had mentioned the All-Star game, and we can't, uh, we can't do the 94-95 season without talking about those All-Star jerseys and the ones, uh, the historic Phoenix All-Star jerseys. Uh, here's a quote from Ryan Bort uh, from Esquire. Uh, it's nice that the NBA wanted to make the 1995 All-Star jersey specific to the year's host city, but a huge cartoon cactus on the front? You're damn right. The 1995 jerseys are ugly, sure, but they're so objectively objectionable, it's hard 20 years later not to find them a little bit charming. If you see someone rocking one of these throwbacks in the street, tip your cap and i absolutely agree these are they're like hideous but it's like so 1995 that like you're like you know yeah like like the the next year i think was even more hideous the one in san antonio but this one like you you got the very cartoony cactus it's got like the little like green like like everybody loved like little triangles like the designs had to be like colorful triangles like any any nick show like was just filled the logo just had like colored triangles around it this one had that too it's just they're so 1995 and I just couldn't do this podcast without talking about them and making people, at least if you don't know what we're talking about, right by me saying it, at least go search them out and just see. There's one picture. It's like Dikembe Patrick Ewing and so I, I forgot who else. And it's just the best picture ever. Cause they're like purple and gaudy and there's just terrible designs. And it's just, it's so 1995 and it's just so perfect. I will, I will stand by. I think the, I think the San Antonio ones the next year were even worse, but Oh, those are hideous. No, those are <laughs> like these, like, 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 like Ryan said here, those are like, there's some sort of charm to these ones. Like they're oh, okay. You know, there's the fun little cactus or, or whatever. Those next years are horrendous. Those are just really, really awful. Yeah. And, and I find bad all-star jerseys far less objectionable than bad regular uniforms. Cause you don't have to see them all the time. You know, you, the all-star jerseys are, are one and done. So, you know, if, if they're bad, who cares? But if they're, um, but you know, if you have to see them all all the time for you know at least a few years, it's it, it's going to wear on you. So, so I, I um, so I'm willing to go along with this line of thought as long as again it's it's sort of like one uh, night thing. But um, so a few uh, big moments of the um of 1995 that we should get to uh, historic landmarks. Uh, Lenny Wilkins broke a uh, Red Auerbach's a record. Uh, to become the all-time wins leader, uh, he was the coach of the Hawks at the time. They beat the um, they they beat the the then Bullets uh, still um, in Atlanta. Uh, Red was on hand, and Wilkins even took a, a few uh, puffs from a, a cigar in tribute to uh, to Red. Um, he ended up with he cleared 939 victories, and then um, uh, Wilkins finished his career with a. Um, 1,332. Uh, that is second all time. Don Nelson passed that with uh, with only three more wins. So um, there's a, a, a decent chance for uh, some coaches to um, pass that mark. Although it will definitely take a lot of work. Probably Popovich, I think, would have the uh, the the best chance. But he's still, you know, at least a couple hundred um, away from that record. So we'll see. Um, 
Another uh, another big moment, Moses Malone retired. He was the last active uh, ABA player in the league. In fact, he retired with an ABA team, the uh, the Spurs. He played 17 games with the Spurs that season. Um, and uh, inclu- uh, uh, Dave Robinson, of course, being on that team. Some of his other teammates were uh, Avery Johnson, uh, Dennis Rodman, uh, Chuck Person, and Doc Rivers. So a, a fun little crew uh, of characters there. Vinny Del Negro as well. Um, J.R. Reed, uh, Terry Cummings, and John Elliott. So um, a, a mix of guys. Uh, many of them still are either coaching or have media roles in the league. And his final game was a December 27, 94. So he didn't play that. He actually didn't play into 1995 technically, but it's part of the season. So we're going to count it. And he, um, in his final game, he made a nearly uh, full court shot from the opposite free throw line against the Hornets. And it was the eighth three pointer of his career. Um, <laughs> and um, yeah, he was uh, fourth all time in points. Now he is seventh. He's about to be passed by Dirk and, th- and third all time in rebounds. So great career. Obviously, we have a whole show dedicated to uh, Moses when he unfortunately uh, passed away. But uh, he notably was the last active ABA player. Um, a couple others I'll just go through real quick. Um, final game in Boston Garden. It was um, it was torn down after the season to. Uh, oh, actually, it took a while for it to torn down, but but they moved to the um, the TD Garden, um, and the famous uh, famous for its parquet floor and its very rough conditions. The um, the last official basket there was by Horace Grant in Game Four of Orlando's win against. Uh, Boston on May 5th, 95. It dated back there to 1928, and the Celtics debuted there in 1946. So, um, and uh, and then one more, uh, John Stockton replacing uh, Magic Johnson as the NBA's all-time assist leader. He did it on uh, February 1st of 95, uh, passing uh, 9,922. Uh, record, record breaker came on a baseline jumper from Carl Malone. He actually did it in 14 fewer games than uh, Magic did. Um, the game was halted and he was given a uh, game ball and congratulated by his teammates and family. The governor and, uh, and Senator Orrin Hatch were there. And after the game, there was a, he gave a thank you speech. And he finished his career with um, 15,806 assists, second to uh, Jason Kidd is second with 12,091, which is about, uh, so he's about 76% of the assists that um, Stockton has. So if you took that percentage of Kareem's 3,800 um, points, it would equal uh, about the amount that Dirk has right now, about 29,000 points. Uh, and Dirk is eighth all time in uh, points at the moment. So um, I, I, the, the distance and scale of how much Stockton is ahead of um, his competition <laughs> is uh, quite staggering. So, Yeah, you have here you have, you, in, your, in the notes that I'm looking at, you have. Chris Paul has the best chance to to break it, and I'm thinking to myself, like, D'Angelo Russell might have the best chance. <laughs> yes, Chris Paul is about half the uh, fewer than half the assists that uh, Stockton had in his career at at this moment. So yeah, some some 14 year old somewhere in yeah, the, yeah, probably, yeah. Like, <laughs> you're you're probably right, but um, as far as anyone in, nearly in that with that mark, that is LeBron is somewhere around like 6,600. So I guess. Uh, Although uh, he probably not gonna play that long, I, I think he'll play a while, but probably not quite that long. So, yeah. The um, the other one that I, uh, the other thing that you mentioned, um, there's there's sort of a a symmetry to Moses Malone and Dominique Wilkins, who were teammates for a little while. And one thing I always loved about them was at the end of their career, they bounced around a lot, and in a way, they kind of gave a whole lot of franchises like the Milwaukee Bucks and the Washington Bullets at the time, and 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 the Spurs. They gave them like a little slice of their careers and, and 
as weird as it sounds, you know, yes, it's great when we can have a John Stockton who plays his whole career, super long career with one team. But it's also kind of cool when a guy who is an established legend goes and plays for a few other teams at the end of his career and, and introduces himself to a fan base. And I, I'll I, Moses is one of my favorite players of all time, and I'll always love that he and Dominique both did that to some degree where, uh, you know, they gave teams like the Celtics who had been – Celtics fans hated Dominique Wilkins. <laughs> and, and Dominique ends up being the best player or at least the second best player on, on a playoff team for the Celtics in their lowest – in one of their lowest moments as a franchise. And that, that, that to me is just really cool. And that was something that was happening a little more often back in the 90s than it does now, I think. Yeah, and, and really for the first time at that point since I mean that's really you know for free agency is even bigger there. I mean I mean there definitely were you know trades and even into the eighties there was you know that was when free agency really started to pick up. But I think even more in the nineties, especially with with some of these guys who at the end of their careers, their main team sort of uses loose for them. But they're but these guys are also playing to an older age than they previously had been. So and there are also more franchises now. There's more opportunities for teams to be like yeah you know okay yeah I mean he'll sell some tickets for sure we'll take them you know or you know or you can help us a little bit you know so so that was kind of cool you know it'd be cool you know who could do this and if there are any heat fans listening i apologize Dwayne wade could do this oh because he doesn't quite fit what the heat want to do moving forward um he's, he's struggling with goran dragic next to him he's beloved and his status with the heat is not in question he can go somewhere else and people are not going to hate him for it i don't think and it it would be cool for Dwayne, a guy like Dwayne Wade to go and say, I want to play for, you know, four more teams in the next seven years. And, and um, they're, they're, people sort of hate that concept. And that's why you see teams clinging to their, their players um, just to avoid that Patrick Ewing on the Sonics and, and Magic or Hakeem on the Raptors look. And I get it. But if you start a little earlier, the way Dominique and Moses did, it doesn't feel as bad. You know, Dwayne Wade can still actually give, say, you know, the Milwaukee Bucks. He could actually be a good player for them and and help them take it up a level. And that would be a little more uh, appreciated than, you know, what we saw with Hakeem on the Raptors, which was just always awful and weird. And. Sure. Well, it's kind of, yeah, Paul, I kind of feel like it's what Paul Pierce is doing right now. Yeah, I was about to say he, he's he's a guy who now when he's Paul when Pierce is kind of doing that. You're right. We're gonna yeah when it's all said and done, we're gonna know with Paul Pierce as a Boston Celtic, and he's gonna be revered there. But you know what? Hey, he helped the Washington Wizards have a really good season. You know, and that's like that's fine. And like he had his little spot in the Brooklyn Nets or whatever. So it's like yeah. But when it's all said and done, we're gonna think of him right. as a Boston Celtic yeah. player. We're gonna he's gonna be revered there. He's gonna have his numbers or whatever. But it's not like yeah, it's not like oh my god, he played for the Wizards. Well, forget all that he did with Boston. <laughs> forget that. Like exactly. let's just move on from that now. Like. Exactly. Yeah, so it doesn't cloud it uh, too much. Uh, two things I think we have to talk about before we get out of here. Uh, Michael Jordan returned. Uh, that was kind of cool. Oh, we have to um, talk about that? All right. Yeah, no, I mean, I don't, I don't really care. I mean, everyone else is going to talk about it in the 90s right. week. I'm sure it'll Fair come enough. up a bunch. But, all right. Uh, just a quick little thing about him, you know. Um, of course, the year prior, I mentioned a little bit earlier, they had done pretty well without him. You know, Tony Kukoc came in, Scottie Pippen and Kukoc didn't really work as well together, but Pippen had a good little year. It, basically, they were fine, but they didn't have the weapons to really make a big run. 94-95 didn't go quite as well. Uh, Horace Grant had left to go to the Orlando Magic. Uh, Ron Harper, who was a big guy to bring in, yeah, he was kind of a bust and he wasn't really doing all that well with them. They were about 500 staggering into February. 
Uh, and Jordan was getting ready to go to spring training with the White Sox. Uh, the White Sox had mentioned that Jordan was probably going to go to AAA. He was going to move up the ladder, maybe get to the major leagues in 1995. Of course, the 1994 um, player strike was still going on. Hadn't been settled yet. There was talk of replacement players. Jordan didn't want to get caught up in that and sort of started practicing again and going to the Birdo Center, the Bulls training facility. And then it all culminated in the famous words, I'm back. And that was... Um, Interestingly enough, I know there's an article uh, about his agent, David Falk, had written a bunch of different things of, okay, how do we do this press release? What do we do to come back? Jordan hated all of it and just said, put on back, and <laughs> that's all I need to do. <laughs> Simple, straight to the point, don't care, and then that's that's it. So he kind of ripped up everything else uh, and said that's what we're doing. Uh, so about, you know, uh, the Bulls then finished the season 13 and, and 4 with him. Um the the season, they were 47 and 35. They had a first-round playoff date with the Charlotte Hornets. They won that series <laughs> One, uh, and then they dropped, of course, the next series to the Magic, led by Penny, Jack, and former Bull Horace Grant. So uh, one of the quotes uh, that's interesting as well from Michael Jordan says, we're not that far away. And, of course, one one year later, they would go 72-10. and 10. So uh, very interesting there. And then the last thing I think we absolutely have to talk about, which is one of my favorite parts of this season, is the first year with the shortened three-point line. So a little background of this, a panel of 27 NBA executives uh, voted to shorten the three-point line and add a, uh, uh, and add a third free throw for uh, players that were fouled on missed three-point attempts. I oh. sort of, I forget that that wasn't a thing that like always happened. Like oh, yeah. when I was reading that, I was like, oh yeah, I, forgot <laughs> like, that I guess too. that. Yeah. yeah, I was like, oh, all right. Like, and, the, and of course, all the aim was to increase league scoring uh, and also keep defenders from packing the middle of the lane that had become a problem. Uh, with the slashing, of course, the NBA had become a very slashing league, and you also had you know hard fouls in the lane. And we know, uh, or, or many people know, that '93 '94 team was marred by a ton of like super aggressive fights in the playoffs. You know, the famous one of of, of uh, the Bulls and the Knicks, you know, fighting into the crowd, into David Stern, who's just like looking on, like, oh god, like stop doing this. Like, uh, so that, that's it was another thing too to sort of stop a lot of the clogging the lane, the hard fouls, and that sort of stuff. Uh, teams took advantage right away with the shortened three point line. There was a 444. Uh, more three-point attempts um, in the league. Uh, it's a, uh, a, a there was 686 less uh, two-point attempts, and this is averages per teams. Uh, just so, uh, just so you know, uh, John Starks was clearly a big fan of the shortened three-point line. He took uh, 611 threes that year. Uh, the year prior, he took 337. So he <laughs> was was feasting on that. Uh, and then uh, in the three seasons before the shorter line, uh, the average team scored 100. Uh, 105.6 points per game, and then in the three seasons with the shorter line, uh, the average team scored 100.8, so it did not help yeah. to at all what they wanted to do. Uh, teams were taking more threes, but overall league scoring was not increasing all that much. Uh, this is a great quote from the Sun Sentinel. It's Glenn Rice. They asked uh, Miami Heat Glenn Rice what he thought of the shortened three-point line. He says, I guess they want me to light it up now. Maybe I'll shoot all threes this year. Uh, <laughs> Glenn Rice uh, only ended up taking 100 more threes that year, and he shot uh, shot about 30% uh, better than he did the year, or, or shot about 30% um, on threes. And despite his claim that he would only take threes, he took 952 two-pointers that year. So uh, close, Glenn, but not quite there. But yeah, I think it's just really interesting, this idea that let's do this, let's shorten it, and that you got a lot of teams taking them, but overall the league scoring not only didn't increase in, in, in scoring, or it didn't increase, but actually in the next year's prior, would just plummet, and then they would just get rid of the idea, because I was like, all right, well, it's not working, yeah. which would, for, as we know, lead to yet another <laughs> just slogging years of the NBA. One thing one thing that's interesting about um, the earlier point you made about the Bulls, Horace Grant 
killed the Bulls in that series. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. <laughs> yeah he <laughs> he was it too. vicious. He averaged 18 and 11 in that series. And for the rest of the – for the playoffs as a whole, he was only averaging like 13. So <laughs> he clearly – and the Bulls didn't have a real power forward that they could lean on because this was the one year between Horace leaving and Rodman arriving. And, and um, you know, that's why I said it would have been cool to see the Bulls face the Rockets. It would have added some legitimacy because the Rockets would have beaten the Bulls because the Bulls were starting Tony Kukoc at power forward and couldn't rebound, basically. I mean, Scottie Pippen was their best rebounder, and um, <clears throat> that was the, that was why that Bulls team was not as good. It was not because Michael Jordan wasn't good, because Michael Jordan was. It was mostly because they didn't have a Horace Grant or a Dennis Rodman to anchor them down low, and then when they went up against Horace, he killed them. Yeah, I mean, you had Dickie Simpkins like starting twelve games for that yeah. team. Like they, they just needed anybody that had size to just get in there and, and do something. And yeah, it just didn't work. And and yeah, I don't, I don't have the quotes in front of me, but I know Horace was very, uh, <laughs> very willing to tell people that he was dominating his former team. I, I don't have the quote, but I, I know I've seen him before. He, uh, he, he knew what he was doing. It wasn't like, oh, weird <laughs> against the Bulls. I don't know. Yeah, I didn't even know. Yeah, it, it is funny how many of the. I mean, they didn't do much to revamp that team between '95 and '96, other than add. Um, other than Ad Rodman, I mean, they lost B.J. Armstrong. I mean, but they have Kukoc, they have Kerr, they have Longley, Purdue, um, and even Ron Harper, who had a pretty small role in, in '95. Obviously, it got bigger um, once he got healthier, and once um, you know they, they they kind of figured out um, you know the the system with everyone there. But uh, but yeah, I mean, they didn't they didn't have to really have to do that much. Obviously, adding Rodman was a huge change. But um, but yeah, I mean, that was uh, that was a big. Um, but as far as you know, like, not like they had a whole scale overhaul of the team or anything like that. I mean, they'd already basically done that from 93 to 95 and then, you know, right. reaped the dividends the next year. You know, um, Harper, uh, Russ Bankston, um, former Slam editor, now with Complex, he did an interview with Harper about those years. And basically <clears throat> what really stood out to me was Harp was brought on to be the, shoot, the shooting guard to replace Michael. And he struggled so much with the shooting guard role in the triangle offense and being the go-to scorer in that way, which he had been good at with the Clippers and, and Cavs. He was a 20-point-per-game scorer with them. But he struggled with what Phil wanted him to do. Phil wanted him to be MJ. He wasn't MJ. So he – when Jordan comes back, Ron Harper is like, what, is, what am I here for? Why did I, why did I think that coming to the Bulls was such a good idea? And Phil kind of said, look, Ron – we love you, and we think that as a defensive presence at point guard, we can make you into a champion. And basically, Phil turned Ron Harper into a completely different player and then proceeded to win, what was it? I don't know if he won all three with the, the Lakers, but he won at least five championships. Yeah, <laughs> yeah he won two. I, I know he won uh, 2000 2001 with the Lakers. That's right, yes. Well. He won five championships under Phil Jackson. Yeah. And, and sort of in, in the other the other part of that is there's this logic that the triangle needs big point guards that people keep saying. And, and as it relates to the Knicks, Ron Harper is the only big point guard Phil ever wanted. Phil, Phil was running Steve Kerr and B.J. Armstrong at point guard before that. And, you know, it's it says a lot to what Ron Harper is and what Ron Harper's legacy should be that he was so willing to say, I'm going to go from a 20 point, 22 points per game guy to a six points per game guy from a shooting guard to a point guard, all just to be 
on the same team with Michael Jordan and win some championships. Yeah, well, one, uh, it's, it's interesting you brought that up. I, I pulled up Ron Harper's stats here to look at. 93-94 with the Clippers, uh, he shot 235 threes that year, shooting 30%. The next year with the Bulls, shortened three-point line, of course, you would assume. No, it went down to 111, yeah. <laughs> or 110, rather. So it was just like, yeah, you can tell just a wholesale change of how he played, how he was supposed to play. Yeah, he wasn't a slay. He was a kind of a shooter. And then, but it didn't, yeah, that's, it's just it's, it's super interesting. And then, yeah, of course, his career, we all know that. You know, he has that last year with the Clippers, great score, comes to the Bulls, and then just never becomes a great score again, but totally reinvents himself and becomes, you know, a super successful point guard. So not bad. So what you see there is the formation. This was a really, really important year for the Bulls. It yeah. led directly into the next year, which I'm sure you guys will have a podcast that's 97% Bulls. For the <laughs> <laughs> or maybe six podcasts that are 97% Bulls. But yeah, I mean, this was the year that kind of led into that. But it was the Rockets year. So... Yes, it was. It, it, it was indeed. Anything else that we should uh, bring up about, about 995 before we close? I don't know if I have much. I know, of course, we, we talked about uh, Penny and Shaq and just like the peak that these guys were on. Um, I'll, I'll just really quickly do that. Uh, Penny, 23 years old. This is his first All-Star game. 20 points per game, uh, 6.6 assists per game, and 5.4 rebounds per game. And then Shaq, uh, his third year, 22 years uh, years old. His third consecutive All-Star game, he led the NBA in points and points per game, uh, 29.3. And then he had 11.4 rebounds per game. So you look at that as like a dominant, like 22, 23-year-old dominating league all-star games too i mean and and they had a good guys around them too and it's just you look at that and you're like ah man it's just it, the the fact that it never materialized in anything more than that for a, a multitude of reasons is definitely it, it's just super interesting though because you look at that that power of those two guys at that point in this year as well and it's just crazy that you know they're able to make the finals as well but of course we we talked about it earlier things didn't really quite work out and then it ended up sort of spiraling out of there a, a little bit after that yeah and hakeem olajuwon's a top 10 player and I feel like we almost should have spent more of this podcast on Hakeem Olajuwon. Yeah, that, that's, that's a fair point, <laughs> yes. podcast could be all about Hakeem, but he's a top 10 player of all time, I think. Yeah, I, I, I would, I kind of think he's like 11th, but it, you know, close enough. Uh, I mean, he's, he's fantastic, obviously. And uh, you guys should argue for like 10 minutes about 10 versus 11. So. <laughs> That'd be great if you could do that. <laughs> But regardless, he yeah, he, I mean, he's amazing um, the way that he, um, you know, was able to lead um, the Rockets to these two championships with, you know, I mean, he had good team. It's a great system, a great coach. But really, other than, you know, the half a season with Drexler didn't really have another superstar along with him. And Drexler, you know, was older and still very good. But, um, you know, it, it wasn't like I, I mean, you know, large one, he bore so much of the burden of um that team I mean, you could even you know you could definitely make the case that Olajuwon carried the Rockets more than perhaps even Jordan was carrying the um you know the Bulls championship teams with you know with what the uh, you know with Pippen and the other guys that the um Bulls had around them you know I, you know it, it kind of an interesting thought exercise that we probably don't have time for but um I'll say that but I'll I mean just Jordan yeah. in like 91 92 was very different than Jordan in like 97, 98. And in sure, 94, sure. 92, Jordan was doing everything. <laughs> yeah. 
Well, I, I don't even, even by then, I mean, um, you know, I mean, Pippen was carrying quite a load at that point. I, I, you know, I, I, it's kind of a hard thing to um, to measure. But I, you might be right that early Jordan was even doing more for that team. But I, I, I feel like, um, I mean, you know, with, with, with you know, an all-star level, like, all-star level player like Grant and a, you know, top 50 player like Pippen, still fairly young. But, but by 91, he was, you know, in pretty peak form um you know i you, i think you could make that case it is it, a discussion worth having anyway <laughs> it was very good that the, the the rockets peaked at the exact right time to take advantage of that window though yes that's, that's the, and that's like yeah. it, it stands out when you look at the history books is oh bulls three peat then jordan leaves and the same team takes advantage both times like the jazz the sonics the suns the Blazers, they must be so bitter about that, you know? <laughs> they didn't get to take advantage. They didn't quite peak at the exact right time to take advantage of that window. Yeah, uh, and we, yeah which is um, – and, and like I said, all, all those teams had tremendous season that year, but obviously the Rockets were able to um, to pull it out. So, um so anyway, um, Adi, uh, is there anything else, uh, you, anything you want to uh, tell our uh, listeners about that you're uh, doing that might be interested in? Yeah, I think um, sporting news, we have a lot of NBA coverage, but one guy we just added is, uh, so if you like NBA history, we have added as a contributor um, a couple pieces a month, Curtis Harris, who runs ProHoopsHistory.com uh, and, and the Twitter handle, and he's going to write about NBA history. So, uh, check that out too. Yeah. He's done a great job. He's of course been a guest of our uh, program uh, several times. Uh, he's going to be on again soon, actually. Uh, so, um, so yeah, we uh, excited for that and, um, and, and check this out. Um, I, you guys are doing a, uh, do a nice job with the NBA coverage. Look at it in some, uh, in some interesting ways that you don't find anyplace else. Um, I, I like some of Dan LaRue stuff and, you know, some good reporting and everything. I, I think you got a nice mix uh, going on, um, there. So that, that, that's pretty cool. Um, so, uh, so you can check us out at harborparoxysm.com and, uh, you can find us, um, on iTunes and, uh, Stitcher, just search for over and back. If you want to leave us a, a rating and review, we would greatly appreciate it. And, um, uh, find, follow us on Twitter and Facebook at over and back, uh, NBA. So, uh, thanks everyone for listening. And, uh, until next time, uh, we'll be back again soon. The new Super Beats Heart Chews Advanced is now supercharged with CoQ10. Support your healthy CoQ10 levels and blood pressure with two chews a day. Visit RadioBeatsBeets.com and save 15% with promo code DEAL. This is the story of the one. As a maintenance engineer, he hears things differently. To the untrained ear, everything on his shop floor might sound fine. 
but he can hear gears grinding or a belt slipping. So he steps in to fix the problem at hand before it gets out of hand. And he knows Granger's got the right product he needs to get the job done, which is music to his ears. Call, click Granger.com, or just stop by. Granger, for the ones who get it done.